Our guest this episode is in search of peace, and he's looking somewhere you may not expect. Tarek Hadhad, founder of Peace by Chocolate, joins us to share his story. We talk about his journey to Canada with his family, the benefits of settling in a smaller community, and why he thinks chocolate is a better path to peace for him than studying medicine was. I'm Michael Bassett, and welcome to Bright Future. My guest this episode is Tarek Hadhad. Tarek's journey to Canada as a Syrian refugee is a tale of family, community, entrepreneurship, and resiliency. He's the founder and CEO of Peace by Chocolate, the recipient of Startup Canada's National Newcomer Entrepreneur Award, named one of the top 25 immigrants in the Maritimes, and selected by Google as the National Hero Case for 2018. His family and their chocolate business have been discussed in Parliament, in the halls of the United Nations, and their story is increasingly well-known across the country and around the world. Tarek, welcome to Bright Future. Thank you so much for having me. What an honor. Tarek, your family's journey to Canada was recently turned into a book by fellow Nova Scotian John Tatry. How did the idea of the book come about? First, it came to our family's mind that we have to get a documentation based on the series of events that our family had to live since leaving the Middle East, coming to Canada, enjoying the freedom, enjoying the rights, celebrating all the successes, leaving a legacy for our community and for our next generation of family members. We wanted to make sure that all of that is documented. The idea started since 2017. I sat down, I started reviewing all of these articles and videos and photos, and it just came to my mind that, yes, it's that time really to start looking for an author to write about the story. And we started talking to many authors. It's very easy to get ideas. It's very easy to bring someone on for like an hour or two and talk about the story. But there are very few who are dedicated, and they love the work that they do about writing down and telling stories correctly and properly. There are very few that they are really talented and they know that this is important to get the numbers right, to get the facts right, to get the names right, to get the actual events right, to know what Tarek was wearing at the time when the factory was bombed, to know what I was eating and my family were eating at the dinner, the last dinner we had in our house in Damascus before it was stolen and it was burned and it was torn down by a tank and soldiers. And then John, who is a journalist with CBC, who was very familiar with the story, who is a friend of Carolyn Ray, the CBC journalist, who actually took the story from our home kitchen to the world, who told our story to Canadians. John reached out to us, and he was really interested into taking the story to be written in a book, to be documented, to be as well inspiring. And we met with John, I met actually individually with John in 2018 in a local uh, cafe shop in uh, Halifax on Gothagen Street. I came down and actually it was not a very long meeting, but I knew since then that John is the guy to really tell the story and document it. There are a lot of events that were happening at that time. And certainly after the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau spoke about us at the United Nations Summit in 2016, the famous speech that certainly has introduced the company to the international level of awareness and exposure. Since then, we felt that Canadians connected to our story as much as possible. And John really took that opportunity to tell the entire journey and the trips and everything that has happened in the family. I know many people listening to this will already know your story. For those who don't know it well, 
what are the high level pieces of your story that you think will help everybody to understand why we're talking to you and why your story is so interesting? Absolutely. Yeah, I can go for three hours if you want, or I can shrink it down to a couple of minutes. Uh, just in brief, for those who are not aware of our story, our company in Canada is called Peace by Chocolate, and that is based on a mission that our family is here for a reason, which is spreading the awareness and the importance of a noble value called peace. And peace is a need for us in every day. In 1986, my father graduated as a civil engineer in Damascus, and he did not want to become a civil engineer. They went to the wedding of my cousin with my grandmother, and my father was really happy at the wedding after everyone was serving chocolate. And he started seeing the faces, they changed to be extremely happy. Like you are happy at the wedding, but you become extremely happy and joyful when you start getting desserts. The most prominent dessert that was served at that time was chocolate. My father really loved it. He came back home and he started playing with ingredients and he told my grandmother, he found it, he's going to make chocolate because it makes happiness. He wanted to take the passion that he had to create something new and unique and different in the family to the next level. The entire story actually is in the book, but I'm going to give you some teasers about it. In 1987, my father opened a chocolate shop on the way to the airport. One of his first customers was my mother. My mother at that time, she didn't know him. She was on the way to the airport and she was like, I have four hours to spare, so let me just stop by a chocolate shop and buy some chocolates. She arrived at my father's chocolate shop in the afternoon. She opened the door. My father said, hi, my name is Isam. What's your name? And my mother said, oh, my name is Shanaz. There was a stack of 10 boxes of chocolate that he made from the best ingredients you can really imagine. He went back, he grabbed two boxes, he came to the front, he gave them to my mother at that time for free. He told her, Shanaz, go see your family, open these boxes with them, create some extraordinary moments and come back and tell me all about it. And my mother was like, oh, this must be a scam. How can you give free chocolates to every customer? It's not going to work. So <laughs> my father said, no, I'm really open recently and I want to get feedback. So go taste the chocolate with the family and come back and tell me about it. When she opened the boxes with her family, there was a note that my father inserted in the boxes that said, my name is Isam. I don't make chocolate. I make happiness. So imagine opening a chocolate box that you got for free and a gift. Not only the chocolate was delicious, but the message was spot on. My father gifted those boxes to my mother as a way of connection and spreading joy and happiness. That's actually how my parents met. And in a few months, they fell in love. And that's how I was born. I was born because of two free boxes of chocolate. In 2005, my father finished building one of the largest chocolate factories in the Middle East that was opened and was exporting everywhere in the Middle East. 2008, my father shipped the first chocolate to Belgium and Germany. I'm like, how can someone from Syria send chocolate to Belgium? Well, my father was so confident that the recipes that he has made is very unique and very remarkable. And we got a lot of amazing feedback from Europeans at that time. But for myself, I have a background in medicine. When my family were growing up in the love and passion of making chocolate, I was growing up to become a physician in Damascus. I got into med school and I was in the middle of my way throughout med school when the war started in 2011. We started feeling the war in 2012. And there are many incidents that you would read about in the book that led our family to take the decisions to leave the country. 
Let me remind everyone that one of the quotes my father used to say, there's nothing harder than immigrating and leaving your homeland. The night that changed everything for our family, it was the middle of July, 2012. And that was the time when we saw tanks, soldiers, helicopters were around the building we were living in. We were in a building that was 10 floors and the 10 floors were all occupied by my family. The traditional family home in Damascus that was expanding with each family member. It started as the ground level with my grandmother, and then it went with my fathers, and then my uncles and my cousins and everyone. So 10 floors really are fully occupied. The tradition that we had in Syria is every Saturday, we used to have the supper together in my grandmother's house. There was a giant table in my grandmother's house that we were sitting on it every Saturday at 6 p.m., having no excuse to miss the supper with your family. We gather and then we have fun with the family, tell stories, cry, laugh, celebrate, whatever the occasion is, or even without an occasion, we make our own occasions. We make our own celebrations, our own fun. You have 60 members of your family. So every weekend, there's a huge possibility that there is someone's birthday. There's someone <laughs> someone's <laughs> celebrating something, a new baby, a marriage. When the war started in 2012, that night of middle of July, we were having the supper in our apartment. I think it was the middle of the week. And we started hearing explosions around the building. The first time, really, we hear explosions. And the first time we see helicopters. The first time we see soldiers on the street asking for IDs to get into your apartment. Imagine being in Canada and you have soldiers all over the place and asking you for your ID, for your driver's license to get into your home. Imagine the stress that you would feel. It was a very stressful night for our family. And then we started hearing explosions. And then we started seeing fires and people were screaming and people were dying around the neighborhood. All the family members, we rushed to the basement at that time. 60 members of my family, we rushed from the 10 floors, went to the basement in the house. We stayed in a room that can barely fit 20 of us. 60 members of my family were just staying in that safest room without any windows, without any air, without any food, without any water, without medicines without any basics for life, for five nights. I really still wonder, how did we survive? No one should be in a basement waiting for the moment of death because of an airstrike or a bombing. At that time, five nights without all of these basics of life, we left the building, we rushed outside, and my family are scattered now in more than 26 countries. Most of them left Syria at that time. My family now are in Turkey, are in Egypt, are in Japan, they're in Indonesia, Germany, Sweden, Spain, Brazil, Argentina, the US, and we are one of the family branches in Canada. Imagine being together only in 2012 and being scattered now in 2021. When uh, in 2012 we lost the house, we decided to stay in the country, although we lost our house, but we had the factory. My father was like, I'm going to keep making chocolate. And the message was that during the time of war, people need chocolate too. Chocolate just lifts spirits. Like at the same time now during the pandemic, people need chocolate too. It's just a message of resilience and sweetness. 2013, after the factory was bombed by an airstrike, we lost the entire factory with all the machines. We lost many family members and who were killed, who were arrested, who went missing. In March 2013, we left to Lebanon, and that's when we became called refugees. Becoming a refugee is not a life goal. It's not a decision, right? It's something that you are forced to live. When we were in Lebanon, 
we had the opportunity to give back and contribute and use our time as a medical coordinator with my healthcare expertise. I was able to join many organizations, rebuild hospitals on the border between Syria and Lebanon for all of the wounded patients, those who have cancer, thalassemia, who want surgical operations. We're able to establish all of those primary and secondary and tertiary healthcare centers. But in Lebanon, we lasted only for two years and we didn't want to stay there because we wanted a permanent house and we wanted a permanent home and we couldn't even go back to Syria. So Canada was the only country on the planet that opened the doors for us. All other countries around the world, they shut down their borders in front of immigrants and refugees. Tarek, how well did you understand the country before you came here? Not at all. I had no idea, actually, what to expect in Canada other than what people at the embassy at that time were talking about, which is Looney Tooney Double Double. That's what they <laughs> That's what you hear. It's not far off. <laughs> That's very true. Honestly, I hope that my lovely citizenship that I gained in 2020, I hope to be an ambassador between these two amazing regions. Because people there just don't know about Canada because it's too far. We are 8,000 kilometers far away from where I was born. I really want people to know that this country is an amazing place of freedoms, human rights, dignity, integrity, giving people kindness, embracing newcomers, and offering them the opportunity and the chances to succeed. But I also knew when I was in the Middle East that Canada is too cold. It's really different to come to Canada in the winter too. We have been approved to come to Canada in the fall of 2015. And my flight was to Toronto in December in 2015. One of the amazing experiences that I have ever lived is coming here from Beirut. The journey of arriving in Toronto, meeting the governor general at that time, shaking his hands, being interviewed on CBC, I remember that very well. It was the national news. It was live from the airport too. And people just started recognizing my face the next day in Toronto when I was walking in the hotel. And they were like, wow, we saw you yesterday on the national news. So I realized that Canadians pay attention. They watch the news. They care about supporting and engaging with these newcomers to make them successful and learn their stories. In Toronto, I knew I was not going to stay there. I knew that there is a home for me in Nova Scotia. So the next day I flew into Nova Scotia and I didn't know where Nova Scotia was actually on the map even before I landed in Canada. I arrived in Halifax and I saw people carrying flowers and signs. They were saying, welcome to Canada, Tarek, in both Arabic and in English. And it was very heartwarming because at that time, I had no idea who these people were. They did not really know me at that time as a person. They just had my name. But they believed that I'm a human being. And they believe that I have the right to live and I have the right to succeed and I have the right to peace. And that really was another inspiration for me. So we drove back to Antigonish and then our family arrived in three weeks and we started talking about rebuilding the company and the family lives in Canada. Your story brought back memories of flying. I think I had forgotten that it was around Christmas time that the Syrian refugees were coming. My family was on a flight out to the prairies, and we had new Canadians from Syria, new refugees. What you detailed in terms of the arrival or the people clapping on the plane, that was very much the experience that we had. I had forgotten all about that. Thank you for laying the land of your story, because it is so important to hear 
your story from you. With this past year, we've seen our immigration rates drop to the lowest levels that they've been since 1998. Almost 50% less new Canadians arrived in Canada last year during the pandemic than the previous year. Our forecasts at the conference board are very clear that immigrants and new Canadians are a huge part of what we need for economic prosperity and to build our country. You've been on the other side of this. What do you see as our biggest strengths as it relates to our immigration system? Canada does not ask any immigrant, any newcomer or refugees to take off anything of their culture, to forget about their heritage or their roots. Everyone is welcome to celebrate as they are. The other reason why immigrants are successful in Canada, which is very unique to this country, is that all of those amazing people arriving in this country with a great passion and love to the country, but also the place that gives them identity. Since the moment I arrived in Canada, I had my permanent residency. Canada gives permanent residency to most newcomers and immigrants when they land or after a few years. You have the rights to healthcare, to employment, to education, to resources, to apply for grants. You just cannot vote in elections until you are a Canadian citizen, which only takes three years now to apply and then another year for application processing. This is one of the strongest points about being in Canada and the immigration system in this country is really celebrating all of those skills and talents that immigrants bring to Canada. No one comes to Canada empty. Everyone comes to Canada with skills and talents. Even though we lost everything in Damascus, for example, in the war, we did not lose our skills and talents like millions of other immigrants. If we are not indigenous in this country, then our grandparents or grand-grandparents or grand-grand-grandparents came from somewhere. The beauty of this country is continuing to welcome and building that strong immigration system that became the envy of the world. I spoke about the Canadian immigration system in London, UK. I spoke about it in Paris. I spoke about it in Denmark. I have traveled around the world when I was still a permanent resident and talked about why this country is so amazing and the stories of newcomers being celebrated and encouraged to serve their own businesses. And you see a lot of immigrants and newcomers and refugees, they're always passionate about telling their stories in Canada and they are encouraged to because this country is strengthened when we know where we came from to know where we are going. By knowing where we came from and celebrating all of those values of giving back, which is a very important thing that immigrants always tend to think about. The country that brought us to this land on safe flights, while other countries in Europe were closing their borders and people were dying, sinking on boats, trying to just arrive on safe shores and just rebuild their lives and have their kids in schools and have their businesses restarted. This country had a very amazing opportunity for newcomers. And the second thing about Canada, which is very important, one of the most important information about this country is that this is the second largest country in the world. We have only maybe one-tenth of the U.S. population, even though the U.S. is smaller than Canada. And most of the population, 80%, live on a certain distance from the U.S. border. There is a lot of space. And there is a lot of opportunity. When I started digging more into stories of immigrants, I knew that no one was taking away from this country. Everyone was giving to this country something, like this country gave a lot to us. Everyone was a student, was an entrepreneur, was a lawyer, was a doctor, was a pharmacist, 
everyone was contributing in a different way. Everyone was filling a gap or creating an opportunity for someone else. I want to ask you about a challenge that we are very aware of in terms of our education and credentialing system. When we had Shamira Medhani on the podcast, she talked about how our systems are creating barriers or additional challenges for new Canadians to actually contribute. Like you said, they come here with their experiences and would love nothing more than to be able to apply them. She talked about how our systems need to be able to recognize and figure out how to manage that. Also looking at employers to get employers to start considering experience outside of Canada as an important lever in bringing people in, not using that as a barrier. Back in Syria, you were studying to be a doctor. You were very close on that path before you left. But when you came to Canada, that career path seems to have ended. Could you talk about why? When I arrived here, I was basically in Canada just because I applied for a scholarship in Lebanon to come through WUSC, which is the World University Services of Canada. And that scholarship was not offered to me, but I was invited with my family to come here based on that application. So the embassy had my application and they wanted to get us to this country. At that time, I was always hoping to come here and restart my medical studies and continue on the path. What happened is when I landed here, I started contacting universities. And you can see the article on CBC at that time when I shared all the roadblocks that were just in my face to get back to medicine. So many universities, they were asking me to go to high school again. They did not even recognize my credentials or my transcripts. They did not even recognize the experience that I have spent in Lebanon with the American University in Beirut, with the World Health Organization, with many other organizations. The system certainly needs to change to accommodate and to engage all of those highly skilled immigrants, well-trained and well-educated into the system right away without the need to waste their life, without the need to ask them to go do high school again and then get another graduate degree, undergraduate degree, all the exams and the tests and the interviews, everything was happening so quickly. So I'm like, yeah, let's just uh, not give up. Let's just keep going. So I was engaged in a Bachelor of Science at Zendefix University in Antigonish, where our family lives. And I was really happy to restart again. They gave me two years for my credentials. It was awesome. But other students did not get that in other universities, which was a challenge. The reason why I actually then put everything on hold Many of those immigrants with high skills and high talents, they just lose their expertise by time and they get uh, sucked by the system and the society in a way that they didn't want to. And that is a huge problem in Canada. We found that during the pandemic where many families here in Nova Scotia are without family doctor. Thousands, tens of thousands of Nova Scotians are without family doctors up until now. There is a huge shortage in the healthcare experts from doctors to nurses to and moving on. The message was at that time, let's get the family resettled. Let's get everyone engaged in a different way, whether by in schools like my siblings or by rebuilding the business where my other family members, all the older family members, my parents, myself, my sister, Ala. And we started talking about registering the business, opening a little shop beside the house where we can just make chocolate and sell it and go to farmer's markets and go build a factory. And all of that takes time and takes dedication. You cannot focus on more than one thing and make both successful. I dedicated myself to rebuilding the business and expanding it. 
but other people give up. Other people actually don't have the resources and they don't have a big family to restart a business and they cannot do anything about it. They lose all their skills and credentials by time. And I really hope to see Canada changing that. And I'm really happy with all the conversations I have had with all ministers of immigration. And I've had a conversation with the federal ministers of immigration. I have had with the provincial minister of immigration. I advocated for immigrants to get their credentials recognized in Canada faster. I hope to see the pandemic as a learning curve and an awareness campaign by itself to all of those universities, to all of that system, to tell them that we need more acceptance into these systems with credentials for these immigrants without having to lose years of their lives because they will not have the patience and the resources to support themselves in the beginning. When you arrive in Canada, you have enough challenges and you have enough things on your plate to learn the language, learn about the culture, find a house, get settled. All of that takes a lot of time. It's not a one-day thing. It's not even a year. It's five years and there are still many more families are still resettling. Immigration is harder than death. So I hope Canada does not make it harder for all of those people with high credentials, for sure. One of the other challenges that we see in our immigration system is that we've struggled to attract or keep new Canadians in the communities that we would argue need it the most, the communities where population is declining. Conference board research has found that most new Canadians do end up settling in our largest cities. You refer to it as MTV, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver being the destinations. In contrast, your family moved to Antigonish. It's a small community of just over 5,000 people. It is in many ways what I would argue a prototype for a community that needs new Canadians for it to grow. In the last 15 years, the census numbers show that the population of Antigonish had been declining. Attracting and keeping new Canadians like your family is important for those kinds of communities. Can you talk about your own experience in terms of what you see as the benefits of living in smaller communities? When we came to Nova Scotia, it was a great transition from being in Damascus, the city of millions of people arriving in Antigonish, the town of 5,000. It's a huge transition that we did not know about, we did not experience in our lives. So we had to learn all about the techniques and new realities. You can travel from the far east of the town to the far west in a few minutes because there's no traffic jam. Traffic jam in Antigonish is like two cars on Main Street. That's it. It was really a very huge story to tell in the beginning for other family members who were like, what are you doing in this small town? Just go move to the city. And everyone you talk to when in the first month were like, what are you doing there? Just go to Toronto. Just go to Vancouver. Just move. You're not going to be successful in small towns. And I just wanted to prove them wrong because I just found that we came to Canada just because of the kindness of this community that had sponsored our family and that they did not know us and they believe in us as humans. That's not the case with many immigrants. And if that was the case, many towns will be growing and not really shrinking in population. You see many of the younger population just leaving small towns in Nova Scotia today or just leaving the entire province. We lose a lot of potential of these young people. From my experience, the benefit of being in a small town for immigrants is you get a big family that they take care of you. They are always there for you. If you are in a big city like Toronto and you are a newcomer in your second day, no one would notice. No one would know that you are a newcomer. No one would know that 
you have just arrived. You are just a number among millions. If you arrive in a small town, when everyone knows everyone, you will find much more welcome. You'll find much more love. You'll find much more time from people who want you to succeed and who want you to stay and who want you to become part of them. The story of us arriving in Antigua is a huge example. When I landed here, I knew with my family that this is the place where we want to raise our family, where we want to stay, where we want to succeed, where we want to rebuild our business, where we want to hire locals, where we want to give back, and we want to celebrate our Canadianness. This is the place that represents the entire country. We do not tell the general story. We tell what is possible. I'm not saying that all immigrants are going to arrive in small towns and succeed and rebuild their businesses and have a factory 30,000 square feet that I'm speaking from right now. But what is possible is you will have a decent life and you will have people who care about you and you will certainly find yourself with opportunities that you never really even imagined. Another thing about small towns in Canada, which was a huge contrast to small towns in the Middle East and in Syria, small towns in Syria are very much marginalized. You do not even get electricity. You do not, you do not have hospitals. You do not have education. You don't have schools. Everything you find in a big city, you will find in a small town in Canada. Everything. A small town like Antigonish has a mall, has a, a hospital, has a university, high schools and elementary schools and junior schools. There are events that happen here all year round. There's a library. There's a central library. There are banks. There is town halls. There are people. It's just a big city, but shrunk into a smaller population. That's not the case everywhere around the world. And that's really the beauty of this country. It's a system that just serves everyone with equality around the country. Certainly, there is a lot of work to be done in indigenous communities. And for me, as a newcomer, I keep advocating for this. Many indigenous communities across the country that they don't have clean water to drink. When I think about Canada, there are many issues to fix. But for me, living in a small town, I have a lot to be thankful for. And I'm always grateful. You know, this is my personality. I always find positivity in everything I look at. Small towns, I hope to see them flourishing and being nourished by expertise and talents. I hope to see the retention rate from immigrants and newcomers higher. I know many immigrants in Nova Scotia. We arrived at the same time. They did not stay in Cabriton. They did not stay in Truro. They did not stay in New Glasgow. They left and they are now in Halifax. I really hope that immigrants can learn about successful stories in small towns and learn the benefits of being unique and being remarkable in a small town rather than arriving in a big city and becoming a number. You're a business leader. Let me talk to you about the vision that you see for your business. You have a thriving business. You've just opened up a flagship store in Halifax. Where do you see Peace by Chocolate in the next five years? I see Peace by Chocolate as one of the major artisan chocolate provider and maker in the country. I also see it in some major markets across Canada. We are planning to export outside the country very soon. Hopefully by the end of this year, we'll have our first shipment going out. And also I would love to see the company among the top peace advocacy organizations throughout our Peace on Earth Society, which is the social wing, to many, many more organizations and build more partnerships with non-for-profits that they care about social values. Throughout our products, we fundraise for indigenous communities across Canada with our Nitabar, that means buddy in Mi'kmaq in the indigenous language. And we are proud supporters of Canadian Mental Health Association, of Refugee Hub in Ottawa, 
Phoenix Youth programs here in Halifax to help homeless youth, and also many other programs by many relief efforts like Red Cross. After the mass shooting in Nova Scotia last year, we have released a collection and all the proceeds were going to support the Stronger Together Nova Scotia Fund by the Canadian Red Cross. I really hope to see the company advocating more for these causes and solving social issues because so many businesses, they don't just care about their communities once they are successful. It hurts me to see that many other businesses, they just put on the dollar sign and the dollar sign glasses. They have to take that off and put on the community glasses and really see the world around them from a different lens. It's not about profit, profit, profit. It's all about people and purpose. It's all about the footprint that you live on this planet before you leave it. And I hope that the footprint that we are leaving as a company and as a family, the legacy we are advocating for, peace is all about community and peace is all about building these connections with organizations that they are doing meaningful work. So I really hope to see the company doing more of that work and focusing there. And I really hope that we have more amazing good team members joining us because I'm uh, very pleased that uh, our team now, all of our staff certainly are on board with the mission and the vision of the company to craft high-end chocolate and spread the message of peace. I really hope to see the company thriving more and more. And I really hope to welcome more great Canadians on board to our society. This year, 2021, is the year of recovery. After a very tough year during the pandemic, we had to shut down the factory for a multiple month for the safety of our staff. As you mentioned, we just opened a store in Halifax, our flagship store. So I hope to see more of these stores across the country too by that time. But our main goal is becoming an international company after the release of our movie later this year in many online streaming platforms and in movie theaters. What lessons from your business do you think could help other new Canadians be successful? I highly encourage immigrants to think about entrepreneurship as a platform to share their ideas when they arrive here. Because entrepreneurship, as Reid Hoffman said, it's like jumping off cliffs and building a plane on the way down. Many of those people, they are risk takers. They are absolutely aware of the fact that entrepreneurship is an amazing platform to shape your ideas and vision and messages into your new country and your, your new home. And many amazing immigrants, they believe in business and entrepreneurship as a way to expose and to spread their uh, culture and heritage and to share the things that they make Canada just proud and honored to be the nation that we are these days. I highly encourage all of those immigrants to not be afraid of starting a new venture, a new opportunity, a new company. Being able to start something new is not only a great thing for yourself and your family, but also something that Canada will be very proud of. And I have been so honored really with all the overwhelming messages of welcome and support of many people. I live in Nova Scotia. I have got many messages from British Columbia, the furthest province to where I live. And they were all happy to the success of our story and our business. That's very special about Canada. You can do not find that anywhere else in the world. What I always conclude with is no one can go back and start a new beginning, but everyone can start today and make a new ending. For immigrants who come here, they can make their own ending to their story and they can start at any point in time. There's no rush. Always remember, we're in Canada. 
the second largest country in the world, and there is a huge place for success. Tarek, you have such optimism and your vision for your company is so compelling. I want to ask you about your optimism as it relates to Canada and Canada's future as a place that people will continue to want to come and live and that will continue to provide open arms and welcome new Canadians in the same way. Are you optimistic that we'll be able to maintain that? A hundred percent. I have no doubt. I have no doubts because it's all about Canadians. Some people, they are, they are always afraid about the change, for example, in government. And how is that going to affect that spectrum? How is that going to affect the welcome? How is that going to affect the kindness? But it's been always there, no matter who is governing, no matter what is happening in the outside world. Canadians always have these warm hearts and open arms for immigrants coming here and becoming successful and really believing in the opportunity that immigrants bring skills and talents and enrich this country. But in the first place, these people are human beings. I hate when other countries, they just look at immigrants as taxpayers. We're like, let's bring more immigrants. They become taxpayers. They would help fund our hospitals and our roads and they would grow our population and they would be joining our workforce. This is not the way that Canada looks at immigrants. When I arrived at the airport, no one asked me, when are you getting to work? But I know that immigrants are very proud to be contributing to the economy and to be part of this amazing country, the fabric of this amazing nation. I really have no doubt that this country will continue to thrive, uh, not in spite of, but uh, actually because of our differences. Tarek, thank you so much for telling your story and taking the time out of your busy day to talk to us. I appreciate it so much. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to Bright Future from the Conference Board of Canada. If you like what you hear on this series, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how we're doing. Our production team includes Andy Joy, who's our writer, and Sarah Mels, who supports in audio editing. Ideas were contributed by Michael Jones, Rob Collins, and Aaron Brophy. I'm Michael Bassett, and I'm the host and executive producer for this series. The views expressed by our guests are theirs alone and do not reflect the conference board's opinion or research. For more podcasts, videos, commentary, research, and ideas, visit conferenceboard.ca.